Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, this morning we conclude our series, our study on the Lord's Prayer with this last sentence of the prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I hope you've got your Bible out and you have uh, come here to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. And if you have, some of you have already noticed something wrong. We've got a problem here. These words aren't there. But we know that they should be. I mean, we, we quote them when we quote the prayer. If we sing the song, or if you've heard it sung, it's in the song. So, so we know the words are there, but where are they? Well, if you're reading a King James Version or New King James Version, the words are there. If you've got a New American Standard Bible or a few others, uh, the words are there in brackets. If you have most other new translations, the words are off to the side in the margin or they're down at the bottom in a footnote, accompanied by a little note that says something like, the oldest manuscripts omit these words. Or some manuscripts add these words, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Well, Welcome to another one of those big debates among the scholars. Some scholars noting that some of the oldest manuscripts that we have, that we've discovered, they don't have these words. And so they say that these were added by a scribe maybe a century or so after Matthew wrote his gospel. Other scholars noting that the majority of the manuscripts we have uh, contain these words, say that they are indeed the words of Jesus and should be included. The reality is we can't know for sure either way. And so some of you may be then wondering, wow, well, does this undermine our confidence uh, and our trust in the Scriptures as God's Word? Does this undermine the authority of the Bible? And I would say the answer to that question is absolutely not. The Bible is still the most studied, the most attested, the most documented, and the most ruthlessly scrutinized, even, I would say, ruthlessly attacked book in all the world and of all time. And secondly, following all of this study and all of this scrutiny, there are very few passages of the Scripture that are even in question. And they're small, there's not many of them, and the ones that are in question are hidden. In all of our modern translations, they are, they are there, they are marked, so that we can know where those, things, those issues are and even what they're about. So I am confident that 
what was written by the apostles was the word of God. And what we have in our hands today is a very accurate and trustworthy copy and translation of their writings. But it may raise the question, if we're not really sure that these are the words of Jesus, uh, why study them? Are they worth our study? Well, while there are some questions as to whether Jesus actually spoke these words or not, there are three reasons that I have why I think these are very much worth our study this morning. The first of these is simply tradition. This doxology, and that's the doxology means words of praise or giving, speaking glory to God, and, and these words are, are that. They're called a doxology. They have been deeply etched into the history of the church, into the story of the church over the last two millennia. Tradition can be good, but tradition by itself doesn't make anything true nor even valuable. The Jews, as well as early Christian congregations, would typically uh, always end their prayers with a doxology. And some say that supports the idea that, that uh, Jesus would certainly have included uh, this doxology in his prayer. Others would say that that's why uh, some scribe included it years uh, or a century later, is that Jesus didn't. In Luke 2, in the version of the Lord's Prayer there, Jesus doesn't end with a doxology. It was a different occasion, and he may have included one here, or he might not. We just don't know. But tradition, it's ingrained in the tradition of the church, and that that is of some worth. But there's more than that, because these words are true and they are biblical. Though we can't prove that Jesus spoke these words, it's very possible he did. And these words, even if they aren't part of this prayer, they are part of a prayer, another prayer in the Bible. Over in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, David is praying and he prays this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. If you look there, you see there it is. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. Yours, O Lord, is the power and the glory. It's biblical. It's also not only tradition, it's not only biblical words and true words. I cannot come up with or imagine a more fitting conclusion to this prayer. I don't think any better conclusion could be written. Because as we pray and we declare God's glory in this doxology, if we pray thoughtfully, we are actually doing four life-changing actions, four life-changing things as we pray this prayer thoughtfully. The first of these is, as we pray these words thoughtfully, we focus on God. For yours, O Lord, is the, is the kingdom and the power and the glory. All glory belongs to him. 
We end this prayer where we began this prayer, focusing on God, not on us. Our typical pattern of prayer is we, we bring to God our laundry list of requests, things and our concerns, things we want from God. But in our study, we've noted how this prayer turns that upside down. We don't even get to our needs until the second half of the prayer. The first half is all about God. The first request, you recall, was about His honor. Hallowed be your name. The second request was about His kingdom. Your kingdom come. The third request was about His will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even when this prayer finally turns to our needs, there's not a single request about our health or about the health of our loved ones or about our bank account or about us passing some test or about us getting this job or getting that promotion. All those types of things that we usually are praying about aren't even here. Instead, the requests regarding us are, we saw, first of all, bread. Our daily bread, just our basic needs. Secondly, forgiveness from God and our forgiveness of others. And thirdly, for protection. Protection from evil. Temptation. So two of our requests about us are about our spiritual need and about our relationship with God. It's not wrong for us to pray about other things. But Jesus is helping us to see what our priorities in prayer should be. So this prayer is very differently focused than how we normally think of prayer. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 25, Jesus makes a statement, one he repeats on at least several occasions in the Gospels. It's something that likewise goes against our natural inclination, something that seems illogical, something that just seems counterintuitive. He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. In other words, Jesus says, when we focus on our own life, our life diminishes and we lose it. No matter how great it might look on the outside, we end up empty on the inside. Like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, you recall, he decided to try out living life, just cutting God out of the picture. Let's take God out of my life, and what's life like? At the end of it all, he summarizes where his journey ended. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless. He says, everything is meaningless. The way I think it's the NIV says it, utter futility. That's life without God. And that is what, that's where we end up when we focus on ourselves, not on Him. But in this great paradox, Jesus says, when we give up our life, when we make our life about living for Him rather than following our own agenda, following our own desires, it's only then that we end up discovering true life. Life He promises to be 
In John 10, 10, a full life. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life he promises in John 14, verse 27, to be a life of peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Life he promises to be a life of joy. He says, I have come that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John chapter 15, verse 11. Life that is productive and purposeful. He says in John 15, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. On top of all those and more, it's eternal life. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. John 3.36 So this doxology really is a very fitting summary of one of the key points that Jesus is making through this prayer. He's demonstrating in this model prayer for us that our prime focus in prayer is to be on God because that needs to be our prime focus in our life. Focus on God, on His kingdom, on His purpose, and on His glory. This doxology is not a request. Notice that it's, it's not saying, God, would you do something? It's a declaration. It's a declaration of confident faith. What we believe and what we know to be true. For yours is the kingdom. We prayed earlier in this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now we are declaring, yours is the kingdom. You are already the king now. No matter what we see in this world around us, whether it's pandemics, or natural disasters, or terrorism, or wars, or murder, or crime, or hatred, or persecution, or slavery, or toilet paper hoarders, whatever the evil, what we know is God is sovereign because he is the absolute king. He is over all. He is in control. Therefore, we do not fear, we do not live in despair about what is going on around us today. Because God is sovereign. We know that this world is not random. It is not chaotic. Therefore, we do not fear about what is coming in the future because God is sovereign. He has a plan and He's working his plan. Therefore, we do not trust and we do not put our hope in the politicians, not those in Washington, D.C. or any other place around the world. Our hope is not in our president, nor is our hope in any candidate for president. It's not in anybody who's going to get elected in November. Praise God. Our hope is not... Not in a person, it's not in a movement, it's not in capitalism, it's not in socialism, it's not in communism, it's not in environmentalism. Our hope is in Jesus alone. He is our God and He is sovereign. We vote for Jesus. We saw a few weeks ago that the theme of Scripture, or one of the great themes of Scripture, is the kingdom of God that is coming. His promise of the kingdom. He is already king. Because he is sovereign, we know his kingdom is going to come to earth. He's promised it. Hand in hand with yours is the kingdom, and that God is sovereign, is yours is the power. 
God is omnipotent. That means He is all-powerful. He is almighty. God's sovereignty goes hand in hand with His omnipotence. One cannot exist without the other. God's omnipotence assures that He is able to bring to pass everything that He has promised. That nothing can hinder, nothing can thwart, nothing can stop what God has said He will do, what He has determined He will do. So the great praise in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6 is, Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. In those darkest days in Revelation, when everything looks like it's falling apart, and that everything is chaotic, God, the omnipotent God, is on the throne, and He will bring His kingdom to pass. So no matter what our circumstances, no matter what is going on in our lives today, we have confidence and we have rest because God is on the throne. He is our hope. And as Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The third life-changing thing that we do when we pray this doxology thoughtfully is we adjust our expectations. It's that little word forever. How we need an eternal perspective. See, this, this little word forever calls for you and me who are nearsighted people to have the long view to focus on eternal things. To focus on God's kingdom, His power, His glory forever. It reminds us that we have higher priorities, that we have a greater calling in life than the right here, right now. We have a heavenly destiny. We are charged in this life to deal with matters of eternal consequence, not just be caught up in the in the here and now of earthly stuff. To do that, we need to continually have our perspective readjusted to this eternal perspective. Because we live in this temporal world, we are so easily drawn away and we easily get our focus moved to where we're, we're just all consumed with earthly things with things that are going to pass away with time. We so often tend to be like that kid in the checkout line. I know you've been behind them. I have. That kid who's throwing a tantrum and they're fussing because they want a piece of candy and they want it now! And their parents are vainly trying to convince them for the, it seems like, 30 minutes that you're standing in line behind them that they're about to sit down to the most incredible buffet ever known to man. But the kid's not buying. And that's the way we are so often. God is trying to say, keep your perspective on the kingdom. We're caught up in the stuff now. We need our priorities realigned, our perspective adjusted. This lesson on prayer is in the middle, you recall, of the Sermon on the Mount. It was just a couple of verses after this that the Lord Jesus says, probably to most of us, some very familiar words. He says, 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Folks, we need to put our treasure in heaven. So we need our heart to be there because we have an eternal destiny. We need an eternal perspective. The fourth life-changing action that we do when we pray this doxology is that we conform our desires. We conform our desires to God's desires. It's found in that last little word, Amen. Amen is not some magic word that we need to add to a formula that we need to say it just right. We need to say the prayer just right and add the little magic word, Amen, at the end. Otherwise, it doesn't count. It doesn't work. Some people think that's what Amen is. Other people kind of view this as it's kind of like uh, over and out or signing off like somebody, you know, like we're ending a radio broadcast. That's not it. The word amen is simply a word that means, literally, let it be so. Or simply, yes. That's what I want. We we have prayed your honor, your glory, your kingdom, your will. To say amen is to say, God, that's what I want too. Let it be so. It's all about you. Your desire is my desire. Let it be so. Folks, if we really pray in this way thoughtfully, if we really focus on God, if we confirm our confidence in Him, in His power, in in His sovereignty, if we adjust our expectations to have an eternal perspective. If we say, yes, Lord, your desire is my desire, it's going to transform our life. It's going to change our life. Everything about it. Amen. Let it be so. Let's pray. Father, you've been teaching us all through this prayer what our prayer should look like. Not to pray this prayer by rote, but to use it as a guide, as an outline to help us reshape our priorities. We confess that typically when we pray, we've made prayer all about us. But prayer needs to be all about you because when we realize who you are, it changes how we think. It changes what we want. So that our desire ultimately becomes, Amen, Lord. Help us to quit thinking like children. But to be children who know you. So we begin to want what you want. To stop praying like the children who just want their own way. So Lord, change us. Change our prayers. So that we might pray powerfully. We might pray impactfully. We might pray in line with your will. 
your desires. So, Father, we might see you answer our prayers so that you will be honored and you'll be glorified because it's all about you. And only when it's all about you will we discover all the amazing, wonderful things that you prepared for us as your children. Thank you for all you have taught us through this prayer that Jesus taught. Let it be so. Amen.